wasn't as if crime fiction was high bro in uh, Scandinavia, but it was uh, sort of middle bro, I think. At least some of the really good writers, they would at some time have a go at the, at the crime novel. Hi, I'm Abby, and welcome to Criminal Types, where we dig into the real-world cases, research, and obsessions that keep your favorite crime writers up at night. Hi, Criminal Types. I'm your host, Abby, and welcome to today's episode. This week, we are joined by an author whose work has been near and dear to my heart for, I think, well over a decade now. Today, we're joined by Joe Nesbo. Joe Nesbo is a musician, songwriter, economist, a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's won a ton of awards. He is the author of the Harry Hole series, which includes The Redeemer, The Snowman, Knife, and his newest book, Killing Moon, which just recently came out. And I was able to sit down with Joe in the podcast studio here at Penguin Random House when he was on book tour for his new book, which was so much fun. Well, and I think the the greatest honor on his resume is he's our final author guest for season one of Criminal Types. That's right. He is. We're so thrilled to have him to conclude what has been truly an amazing lineup of authors this season. And I want to thank every single one of the authors who took, who took the time to join us. And also, I want to thank you, the listener, for joining us on this adventure. It has been so much fun, and I have felt so privileged to get to speak with the incredible authors who've joined us this season. So, Abby, what have you learned from doing one season of author interviews? and podcasting? What have you learned about authors? But more importantly, what have you learned about being a podcaster? I will say I feel like I've learned a lot about being a podcaster. I had no idea what I was doing going into this. And I have to give a shout out to you, Pat, because Pat has been just seriously a rock for me throughout all of this. It is surprisingly nerve wracking doing a podcast. I mean, I've been super fortunate to do a ton of author interviews, you know, Instagram live interviews, in-person events, all of that. But there is something uniquely kind of terrifying about putting a podcast out into the world. And Pat, you've been such a great support. I joke that Pat is like my producer, but also my informal therapist now. And you've been amazing. So thank you for everything. I have I have loved doing this. I think, you know, I've done all these Instagram live interviews, especially kind of during the early days of COVID, I was doing a bunch of them, like one every weekend. And I always love getting to speak with authors, but there's something really special about having the time and space to do these more kind of deep dive interviews. You get to really unpack some of, you know, the unexpected things that these authors might love, or you kind of can get into the weeds about cool research stories or just movies they're passionate about, whatever it might be. Um, And that's been, that's been a really cool experience. And in terms of what I've learned about authors, I mean, I have always felt like crime writers writers are the nicest people and they are the nicest people with the darkest imaginations. And I think, you know, nothing has um, proven me wrong this season. Everyone has been so wonderful. They've been so generous with their time. And I've just been absolutely fascinated to see the way that they can just find inspiration from things that, you know, like the rest of us might just walk by. But for a crime writer, they're like struck by these moments and they kind of latch onto them and turn them into these amazing crime stories. Yep. And they get it all out of their system, all the, the That's violence exactly and the meanness. Right. The anger, whatever it is, they get it out of their system on the page. And then in person, they are just so kind. Everyone has been absolutely wonderful. It's been truly such a joy to get to speak with these writers. 
I mean, maybe everyone should just write a crime novel once a year. Honestly, just like all therapy. people should get it out of our system. Yeah. See, once again, Pat coming through with the great, you know, amateur therapeutic recommendations yep. Yep. here. <laughs> Unlicensed therapist. <laughs> That's uh, it. So you mentioned movies. Now, of mm-hmm. course, Joe Nesbo had a movie made of, of one of his books, The Snowman. Yes. And I hear you, you got your hands on some merch back in the day for I this movie? I did. Oh, my gosh. This was such a cool moment. So this was... um. It was a while ago now. Was it, what, 2017, I think, maybe? It's been a little while. Um, but I was not working at Knopf yet. I was working at Penguin Random House for a different division. But obviously, I've been just a huge fan of Joe Nesbo since I was, I think, in college was when I started reading his work. Um, and so somehow the studio who was making this movie, they, you know, got wind that I was a huge Joe Nesbo fan. And they sent me this kind of press package um, promoting the movie. And there were all kind of the usual items. There was like a T-shirt, a postcard, all of that. But included in this press box was, I think, the coolest item of swag that I have ever received. So for the uninitiated, um, The Snowman is a serial killer thriller, and it involves a serial killer who um, decapitates his victims and places their heads on snowmen around Oslo. So this, this item in this press box, it was a plush snowman and you could remove the head. It was the best thing I've ever seen. That's that's. Do you do you think they manufactured it with the head already being removed, or were they just like, let's buy up a ton of old snowman plushies and we're going to just chop the heads off? No, this was like a very carefully crafted item. Like it had Velcro um, uh-huh. between the body and the head, so you could like reattach the head. Cool. Up, and it even had the arms were like actual twigs. It was very well crafted. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know what. Send us merch here at Criminal Type. We love getting merch. Send us T-shirts, send us baby onesies, whatever whatever merch you have. Mugs, of course, coffee cups. And any, you know, serial killer specific merch is yes. like great. Yes, yes, specifically serial killer merch. Uh, send it here. So, I mean, Abby, I think it's time to get into this interview. I think it's time. All right. Without further ado, here is our final author interview for season one of Criminal Types. Joe Nesbo. Joe Nesbo, welcome to New York and welcome to Criminal Types. It's great to see you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. How has your time in New York been so far? Uh, it's been great. I, I, I think I've never seen the city more beautiful than uh, than yesterday. Well, it was a, a perfect Oslo temperature. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, we are so happy to have you here and I'm so thrilled to get to interview you for Criminal Types today. So I want to start by looking all the way back. You obviously have such an incredible, very impressive resume. Your books have sold over 55 million copies around the world, have been translated into 50 languages. You've won all kinds of crime writing awards. You've been New York Times bestseller, Sunday Times bestseller. Safe to say you've made an incredible career for yourself as a crime writer. But looking all the way back, before you were a writer, do you remember what your first introduction was to the world of mystery and crime and suspense? Was there a book that particularly interested you when you were a child? Anything like that? Yeah, well, there was um, definitely a crime story. That is the first book I can remember the details from, at least on that's um, Mark Twain's um, Tom Sawyer, mm-hmm. which is a murder mystery. And uh, I, I always return to that book, uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and, uh, and, and Tom Sawyer. Those were, you know, the books that I really loved when I grew up. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. I've talked to a lot of crime writers now and no one has mentioned those books as crime stories or as a murder 
story. Mm. I've never thought of them that way. Mm. No, uh, I mean, it's it's not like it's an investigation uh, going on. Well, there is sort of an in, yeah. invest, uh, investigation actually going on in Tom Sawyer, come to think of it. But uh, um, it's, it's, it's not a po- police procedural, to put it that way, but it's a murder mystery anyway. So you have a bit of a unique background. You obviously grew up in Norway, but your dad, correct me if I'm wrong, your dad was from Brooklyn, right? Yeah, he grew up in um, in Brooklyn with my grandparents. Um, they had uh, uh, emigrated from uh, Norway to uh, to New York, and they returned when my father was in his early teens. Uh, but he brought a lot of American literature with him, and, yeah. and I guess he's the reason why I was introduced to Mark Twain at uh, such an early age. That's so interesting. And, you know, obviously both Norway and the U.S. both have such strong crime fiction traditions in particular. Mm. And I was curious, when you look at your kind of body of work now as a crime writer, do you feel like you are, are you more influenced by the Nordic crime tradition or by the American tradition? Or is it kind of a mashup of both? Yeah, I definitely think it's um, uh, it's both. Um like I said, uh, my my father introduced American literature uh, uh, to me at a young age, and uh, also in my 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 teens, um, I would read Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, and and my absolute favorite Jim Thompson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there was um, already at that time established a um, a strong tradition for uh, crime literature in the Nordic countries, um, especially the Swedes, Sjöval and Valle. They sort of took the um, the pulp fiction uh, uh, of, of crime fiction from the kiosks and into the serious bookstores. Mm-hmm. And so it was uh, it wasn't as it wasn't as if crime fiction was high bro in uh, Scandinavia, but it was uh, sort of middle bro, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> at least some of the really good writers, they would at some time have a go at the at the crime novel. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, I'm sure you get this question all the time from us Americans, but the Nordic crime fiction tradition, it's something that I think so many of us here love. And we also have a little bit of a hard time wrapping our minds around it because Scandinavia in general seems like such a safe and idyllic part of the world. And yet you all write some of the darkest, darkest crime novels. And I say that as a compliment because Nordic crime fiction is my personal favorite. Do you have any personal theories as to what it is in the water in Scandinavia that has created so many incredibly talented crime writers? Um, Not really, other than what I just said, that uh, it it became sort of a tradition in the 70s that you could be a a serious, talented uh, writer and and used the crime novel as a vehicle for your storytelling talents, which meant that there was so many crime, uh, or so much crime fiction around. And um, it, w- it isn't as if there's not written as many bad crime novels in Scandinavia as anywhere else, but there were just so many of them. So yeah. some of them ha- were bound to be good. You know, that's a really good point. I never thought about that. And also, maybe because, you know, we're not reading these books in their original language, maybe some some of the bad ones just don't get translated into English or something oh, like that. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. It's a great mm. point. So as you began to move into your adult life, you had a number of different careers. And none of your original careers starting out were as a fiction writer. And you 
told me once an incredible story, and I hope I get this right, and I'd love for you to share with our audience. I think The Bat, your first Harry novel, it grew out of a publisher had approached you to write about something entirely different. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, uh, she wanted me to uh, write about the band I was playing in. Uh, we had some success in Norway at the time, and and uh, I was a songwriter. And so she uh, gathered from the lyrics that maybe I could write a novel. Mm. Um, and uh, I told her that I uh, will not write about the band, which was what she wanted, a sort of an on-the-road story. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, uh, but maybe I'll... I'll um, write something else for you. So I was going to Australia for five weeks and I brought my laptop with me. And when I came back, I had the first version of uh, what was to become my debut novel, The Bat. Wow, you wrote the whole thing in a five-week span. Well, yeah, uh, I more or less did, but I, uh, it, it was such a kick. I mean, I, uh, as soon as I started writing, I, I, I couldn't stop. So I was I would write literally for 14 hours a day and... Uh, they asked me at the at the publishing house when I came back, you know, how long did it take you to write this? And so I figured that it it didn't sound like a real novel if I said five weeks, <laughs> so I said a year and a half. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I love it. So in that novel, you created this iconic character, Harry, who has gone on to be the star of now 13 books. Your newest Harry novel, Killing Moon, just came out. When you first kind of met Harry, quote unquote, in the bat. Did you have a sense, you know, from the outset that you had found this character who was going to be with you for so many years? Uh, Definitely not. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, um, when I came back from Australia after five weeks, I thought that this wasn't a a script that would get published. Uh, It was more like a visiting card to, uh, to the publishing house. And if they found some talent, there, they would hopefully uh, invite me to to send them uh, the next thing I would write. Um, so I was, it, w- it was sort of a shock, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they phoned me and they said, uh, fine, we, we want to publish this. Uh, I, I, I guess my first uh, reaction, although I didn't tell them, was, to, okay, can you please give it back to me? I have to rewrite this. Oh, you that's so funny, you can't, yeah. You can't be serious that yeah. you are going to publish this. Uh, but but it uh, turned out well. That's amazing. Was it kind of an instant success in Norway when the bat was first published? Um, it was an uh, instant uh, instant success with the critics. Uh, yeah. it received really well, uh, good reviews, mm-hmm. and uh, I received uh, a couple of prestigious prizes. But it wasn't the bestseller, mm-hmm. so it wasn't as if the audience, you know, embraced the Harry Hole character yeah. from the start. Uh, that wasn't until actually the third novel, then something happened and, uh, and and suddenly the whole series became very big. That's amazing. And you know, it's funny, that third novel was the one that completely hooked me on the series mm. too. So there is something special about that third book that does seem like it really draws people in. And readers, if, you, um, if you've never, never read these books, the third book is called The Red Breast and it's excellent. We highly recommend it. Um, so this might be a good moment just to kind of pause and ask you to provide a description of Harry, just in case there are folks listening who have never heard of this character before. Who is the character of Harry? How do you describe him to people? Um, I mean, physically, he's a, he's a tall guy, uh, really tall, uh, skinny, um, short hair, um, blue eyes, of course. Um, but um, he's, he's, he's a tired guy. He's an alcoholic and uh, he... He has led a r- rough life. Um, 
as a character, he's, I, I would say he's a character of contradictions. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, on the one hand, he's, uh, he's, the, he's this analytic cynic, mm -hmm. uh, murder investigator. On the other hand, he's, uh, he's a hopeless romantic. Um, he is first and foremost an outsider. He doesn't really have friends. Um, no, he probably feels more related to the criminals he are chasing than the, his colleagues at the police house. Um, so, in, I mean, in many ways, when I created him, I was I was looking for you know the ultimate cliches of the hard boiled uh, detective, um, and so I did a little bit like. Um, if you read Frank Miller's Sin City, what he's doing there is like he's he's making the cliches even more into more stereotypes, like and, dialing uh, them up, kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. And and that was a little bit what I was doing. Um, but then, as he from the first two novels, where he was sort of behind the camera, or was the uh, reader's camera lens into the stories, he gradually moved in front of the camera and. Um, as as the saga went on, he it got more layers to his characters. So he has slowly evolved into becoming this more complex character that um, shows um, uh, an ability to 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 love. And that is, I think that uh, the biggest thing that's changed is that love has been introduced and that he has embraced his fellow human beings yeah, uh, to a yeah. greater extent. And not all of them, but a few of but them. But a few of them, a select <laughs> yeah. few, a very select yeah. few. But it's funny you say that, you know, because sometimes I think people, I read a lot of detective novels. I love a good detective novel, a good police procedural, Harry obviously being my favorite of all of these series. And, you know, sometimes when you talk about these characters, people who don't know the genre, they might think, oh, they're it's too stereotypical. You know, these mm. you have these detectives who have their demons and they're so burdened by their demons. But Harry, I think, really comes to life for readers. And you mentioned how he's a character of contradictions. And I always felt like those were qualities that make him feel so human, where you feel like as a reader that you're really reading about a real person because he does have those contradictions. Do you think that it is it is those inner contradictions that have made him, you know, so interesting to you and to readers for 13 books now? Like, is that what's given him this longevity? Uh, I, I don't know how readers perceive him mm -hmm. and, and and I try not to give that too much thought. Uh, uh, I had to write about a character that I find interesting and what I find interesting are characters that you know faced with a moral dilemma there is it's not given what their choice will be. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, what I'm trying to do is to put myself and my readers in the shoes of Harry and just put a moral dilemma in front of them. And um, so what would you have done? Mm -hmm. Would you, and, and knowing that there's no way of telling what, what Harry's choice uh, choice will be. I think that that is what we are looking for in, in stories in, in general, maybe subconsciously. It's not necessarily whether they are going to solve the case mm -hmm. or whether they are going to survive physically, but it's whether they will, you know, make the right moral choice that will, you know, give them, send them to paradise mm -hmm. and eternal life, yeah. the salvation of the soul. I think that that is what we are looking for in a, in a story, it's like uh, if you've seen the movie Bad Lieutenant I uh, with Harvey Keitel. It's a, it's a great movie. It's it's sort of a, a, a well rough 
movie. Um, but that's what it's all about. It's a religious movie, you know. Yeah. And and in that respect, I guess I many stories, uh, even if the writers are uh, uh, atheists, uh, it's about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, this is a sidebar. So my dad, I don't know if I've told you, my dad is a pastor and my dad loves your books as well. I introduced my dad to your books and I was kind of like, these are some dark crime stories. Let's see what my dad, the pastor, thinks (laughs) of your books. And he loves them. But now this is kind of all making a little bit of sense, Mm. right? If there's sort of this redemption story or this question of redemption, will a character like Harry be redeemed? I, I I think that element will always be there. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, we we realize and accept that um, a character like Carrie is not going to have eternal life here on Earth. So all we can hope for is that um, he will have maybe eternal life somewhere else. So let's talk about your new book, Killing Moon, which just came out this week. This has been, it's been a few years since your last Harry novel. You had a couple Mm. of standalone novels. You had a short story collection. How did you decide that now was the moment to return to Harry? Because I've talked to a lot of your fans who were really wondering, is Joe going to return to Harry at some point? Mm. And you have, which is very exciting for all of us. Was that always the plan? Did you know that you you weren't done with Harry yet? I I knew that I would... um return to Harry at, at some point because uh, uh, back when I wrote the third novel that we mentioned, uh, The Red Breast, I did ri- write like like storyline for for Harry's life. And uh, but uh, um, in that storyline, um, I don't I haven't specified you know ideas for for single novels. So um, the right idea had to come along, mm-hmm. and um, uh, after having written the last novel, uh, Knife, there were a few standalones and other ideas that I had to write first. Um, so I was um, I was sort of waiting for an idea for a, for a Harry novel, but if the right idea hadn't come along, it, it could have gone five, six or seven years before a new Harry novel. But then um, during a trip to, uh, to Thailand, um, when we were in the jungle climbing, um, the right idea came along. Can you tell us anything about what what was that spark of inspiration? Uh, well, it was actually we had been climbing and we had uh, come across some really creepy bugs. And then during dinner, uh, we were discussing what is the most creepy bug ever. And then uh, a friend of mine told me, because he's he's into bugs, uh, <laughs> and he told me about the sea lice that will creep into the mouth of the fish through the gills, attach itself to the tongue of the fish, squeeze the tongue for a week or two until the tongue falls off, and then it will attach itself to the tongue stub um, and living from the blood of the fish and uh, grow slowly into a new tongue, actually a functioning tongue for the fish. And I just, I couldn't believe this. And um, so um, afterwards I, I Googled the, uh, the Latin word for the, the sea lice and I saw a picture of, um, of an open fish mouth and inside you could see the tongue, only this tongue had eyes and big antennas. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> And so I, I started, you know, this was horrible in a way, um, but still it seemed to work fine and I read more about it and it seemed that this parasite and the host, the fish, they had more or less a happy life together. Uh, things worked out fine for both of them. 
And, um, and so I started thinking about the idea of, you know, um, in human relationships where you have the gray area of who is the host and who is the parasite mm-hmm. uh, in certain relationships. So, and, and that was the whole idea for, um, for Killing Moon. I absolutely love that you heard about something like that and you thought, yes, there's my idea yeah. for a new book. That is what separates crime writers from the rest of us. That's amazing. So tell us what's going on in Harry's life when Killing Moon begins, because this book opens and Harry is not in Norway, which is pretty surprising. He's been in mm. Norway for the majority of the recent books in the series. Where is he? What's going on in his life? Um, at the end of the last novel, uh, Knife, um, his uh Life was in ruins. Um, he had lost the love of his life. And um, he decided at the end of the book to just flee from Norway. Um, he doesn't know where to go. So he is at the airport. He's rolling a dice and letting the dice decide um, where to go. So at the start of Killing Moon, he is in a bar um, in Laurel Canyon, in uh, Los Angeles, and his plan is simply to drink himself to death. He can't see any more reason to uh, to live, and he's well on his way um, when he meets an elderly woman, former um, uh, former film star or not film actor, maybe not a star, but uh, and she slightly reminds him of his mother who died at um, uh, when he was in his teens. And uh, he always, without uh, any reason, blamed himself for, for uh, her death. And she comes along with a problem and she is then representing a second chance to, you know, save his own mother, I guess. So he's, um, he stops drinking and he gets back to what he does best. And when he goes back to Oslo, I loved what you did because he's obviously he's working outside of a true police job. He's kind of an amateur or what's the right word? Amateur sleuth. He's working on his own outside of the police. Mm. And he kind of gets gets the gang back together, people from his past who he's worked with before. And I was curious, how was it different for you, you know, writing about Harry in a role other than an actual police officer. He's still conducting an investigation, but he's mm. not maybe limited by the rules of being in the police. Was that mm. a different kind of experience for you? Yeah, well, when he w- worked in the police, he, he would operate a little outside, you know. That's true. <laughs> uh, the rules. Um, but in uh, in this case, he is actually, he has to manipulate uh, the police and, and the whole investigation. So he works as a private eye. Um, and... Yeah, it's 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 different. I I think that what is what was really different this time was that um, uh, the team that he has gathered around him. I mean, normally he has a lot of professionals around him, and here he is cooperating with um, with his former psychiatrist, who is now um, has cancer, and um, so they. Um, his room at the hospital uh, serves as their office. Um, uh, the third member is uh, Truls Banschen, who uh, is formerly one of Harry's enemies and who is a, a corrupt and uh, in all ways bad police, <laughs> <Yeah>. police officer. <laughs> and then it's uh, Eistan Eklund, um, who the readers also I met in uh, many of the uh, 
uh, previous books, um, who used to be a taxi driver mm-hmm. um, and he's Harry's childhood friend, only childhood friend. And um, But he has you know, now promoted himself to pre- um, selling drugs at the Oslo Central Station. So I... I would love to talk about these secondary cast of characters quickly because I know I'm far from the only reader who loves to get to know these people who are maybe on the periphery of Harry's life. You know, we love Harry very much. And we also love spending time with his former colleagues in the police, maybe his love interests along the way. Um, Are there any of those secondary characters who for you have been particularly interesting over the years? Maybe characters you are always curious to know a little bit more about? Yeah, I think maybe uh, the three characters that are mentioned yeah, here, yeah. they are uh, they are interesting. Um, you had uh, a character called Tom Voller, who was around for uh, three books, mm-hmm. who was sort of, um, um, you know, the, the, the ultimate uh, antagonist to, uh, to Harry. Um, the one character that I thought would only be around for one book uh, is uh, Truls Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was such a despicable character. I just hated him. <laughs> and so, but he was sort of a, he was so bad. It was fascinating. There were like no moral solid ground there. Yeah. Um, so, and and I had to dig really deep to just to look if there's anything there. Yeah. Other, you know. Um, so, um he kept returning in novel after novel, and gradually I got to, I wouldn't say I got to love him, but I got to like him in a way, or, or finding him fascinating as a as a character, because he represents everything that we despise in ourselves. I think all of us, you yeah. know, the, the, the weakness and the willingness to always find a reason to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Do you think that that's true for, you know, for your your villains and your stories as well? Do you feel like you are fascinated by them in a similar way? Because you write some very creepy villains. You have some very creative, very sinister characters over the course of this series, including in Killing Moon. Do you think that it's kind of that interest that keeps drawing you back to these dark characters? Yeah, well, I think there's, for me, there's two kind of dark characters or, or two categories of villains. Uh, one is that character that you can relate to and that has a um, some kind of motive. I mean, uh, uh, you can call them irrational motives, but if it's a motive, it's per definition, it's it's rational. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how the mind of this individual works. It's what they want. On the other hand, you have, um, the, you have the monster, uh, like the serial killer or the, the 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 shark in Jaws, which isn't really a character, but it's just uh, like a metaphor mm-hmm. or a mirror for the rest of the cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I like that too. I mean, um, Harry is, uh, is often hunting serial killers. That's what he has specialized in in his education in, here in Chicago yeah. um, way back. And... Um, and I like that too, because then you really don't have to concentrate that much on the motive. But yeah. but they are just different kind of stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. We cannot conclude this interview without talking a little bit about Oslo, because Killing Moon opens with some incredible lines talking about how Oslo is the place that Harry loves most. And, you know, I have a real fondness for Oslo. It's an incredible city. What is it about Oslo in particular that has made it such a perfect place to set all these crime stories? Um, I don't know if it's a 
perfect place in many ways. <laughs> it's a really imperfect place mm -hmm. to, be, to to put any crime because it's such a, you know, in many ways peaceful, innocent city. But um, at at least that is the public's perception of Oslo, I guess. Uh, but then again, Oslo has its city sites and uh, uh, unknown to uh, to most people. Uh, it was one of Europe's worst cities uh, for heroin uh, dating back from the 70s and, uh, and ever after, actually. I use both parts of Oslo. I do use the innocent sort of peaceful place where, um, uh, where there's law and order. Mm -hmm. And then the the stark contrast of what happens in some parts of the city, and uh, uh, so Oslo, that is um, the real. Both are are the real Oslo, but I guess the 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 city size is a sort of a Gotham City version of Oslo. I do make it a bit bigger and a bit darker than it actually is, but but it's there. It's there. Organized organized crime and uh, and drug dealing and prostitution and uh, and kill killings and. Um, um, there's been, you know, lots of shootings in Oslo yeah. the last few years. Yeah. It seems like it's kind of a city of contradictions, much like yeah. Harry is a person of contradictions. Right. For my very last question for you here, I know that this week, actually, you had a new book that was just published in Norway, I believe, and it's coming out here in the U.S. this fall. And I wonder if you could give our listeners just a little teaser of what is to come from you later this year. Oh, it's a... Um it's a, um, a horror story. Um, it's a called uh, The Night House. Um, I guess, well, to give you an idea, um, I think you could say it's in the tradition of um, uh, Stephen King and Stranger Things, yeah. maybe. Uh, you know, supernatural things happening. And uh, the working title uh, was The Flesh-Eating Telephone, <laughs> just to give you an idea that it's uh, it's a little bit of fun there also, but first and foremost, um, uh, horror. Well, I'm very excited for readers to get their hands on that book. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe, for your time today. It was such a pleasure to get to speak with you. Joe's latest book, Killing Moon, is available now. And keep an eye out for Joe's new standalone horror novel, The Night House, coming to a bookstore near you in October. Before you go, today was our last author interview of the season, but season one of Criminal Types is not over yet. Next week, we'll be airing a conversation that I had with Jennifer Barth, Senior Vice President and Executive Editor at Knopf. Jennifer has had an amazing career working with some incredible crime writers, and in in this special episode, we'll be giving you a behind the scenes on crime fiction publishing. So check back in next week for that conversation. Thank you again very much for listening to season one of Criminal Types, and we'll talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review or rating on your preferred podcast platform. Feel free to send me any questions, book recommendation requests, or comments at criminaltypes at prh.com. This show is edited by Clayton Gumbert. Music in this episode from the songs Empty Orchestra, No Reason, and Xenarthrin, written and performed by Shearwater, courtesy of Sub Pop. Criminal Types is a production of the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group and Penguin Random House Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>